Jeff Bukema had a diamond that was very precious to him. It was given to him over 40 years ago. His father had bought the diamond in a small engagement ring for his mother. It was tiny as diamonds go, but and, and not at all perfect. Jack's father had worked very hard, like hard labor in a stone quarry so he could save enough money to buy the diamond ring to propose to his mother. After Jack came into possession of the ring, he had a jeweler take the diamond out of the engagement ring and put it into a man's setting, and then Jack wore that ring for over 20 years. One night, uh, after a conference that he was attending in a city far from home, Jack went for a walk, and he was held up at gunpoint by two robbers who demanded all of his money, and so he gave them the money and the money clip as well. They asked for his watch. It had been an expensive gift from his only son, but he handed it over. And then they demanded the ring. Jack took a step back, put up his fist, and said, if you want the ring, you come and get it. Now, amazingly, they didn't shoot him <laughs> because he, he was held up at gunpoint. And after hearing the story, the investigating police officer called him an idiot. He said, you're lucky to be alive, you idiot. <laughs> Next time somebody holds a gun at your chest, just give them everything you want, and don't be such an idiot. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul notifies us that there are robbers out there waiting to steal our stuff. Let's have a look. Colossians 2, verse 16. Sorry, this is not on the, on the screen this morning, so just follow along in your Bible. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, we'll stop there. The, the false teaching that was floating around the church in Colossae, was robbing people of their genuine joy in the Lord and their fullness in Christ by placing people in bondage again to things like legalism and mysticism and asceticism. And we'll get there in a moment. But beginning in verse 16, Paul presents a, a powerful defense against the very subtle attacks that can rob us of the joy 
that rightfully belongs to us in Christ. Three alarms, three alarms are sounded in this passage. And every Christian needs to hear them. So, first alarm. Let no one pass judgment on you. This is a warning against legalism. And it's all about diets and days. Now, there's a lot being said about diets today, but diets of a different kind. Evidently, there were some people who were telling the new Christians at Colossae that if they really wanted to experience the fullness of God and really have a, have a deep and, or a higher or more thorough knowledge of God, they should go back and observe the Old Testament dietary laws. Paul responds by writing in Colossians 2.16, No, 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 no. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Why? Because the consumption of food or drink of any sort does not add to your spirituality. It doesn't make you more spiritual. doesn't make you more susceptible to, to, to fullness in Christ. It's no basis for judging a person standing with God or their status in the church, okay? So if you eat meat at every meal, and I know some people who do that, they have breakfast meat, bacon, pea meal, sausage, and they have meat in their sandwiches at lunch, and they have meat in the evening. I mean, you're not a real man if you don't eat meat at every meal, right? So what, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and grow a beard. Uh, okay. So, so, so whether you eat meat at every single meal or you're a dedicated vegan, nobody has a right to judge you on the basis of what you eat or what you don't eat. And, and it has nothing to do with your status in the church. But that's what these false teachers were trying to do. They were trying to impose legalistic demands back on the, on the backs of people who'd been free and who had died in Christ. We're not to judge others or allow anyone to pass religious judgment on us on the basis of what we eat and what we drink. And the same applies to days. Uh, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in, in questions of food and drink. We talked about that. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, the Jews had their special feast days. And then they had these new moon celebrations and special festivities for Sabbaths, and that's just a sprinkling of the special days in the Jewish religious calendar. But when Christ came, you see, he fulfilled all those special days. Most of those celebrations were pointing toward Christ, but oops, they missed it. And so when Christ came, he came to fulfill the law, and he was actually the goal or the telos, the end of the law, and so he fulfilled all of those special days. Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. See, Jesus is all we need. He, he fulfills all of those things. We have the real thing in Jesus. We don't need some legalistic approach to a, a fuller understanding of who he is. We cannot earn more of God's favor by keeping all these rules and regulations of the Old Testament. But the sinful human nature finds it much easier to live according to the law than it does according to grace. Have you discovered that? 
It, it's, it's way easier to live according to a list of rules and regulations because I, I know what I did right and I know what I did wrong. At the end of the day, I can check off my list. But when you're living by grace, it's a little more complicated. And there aren't always rules and regulations to follow. Uh, there are, obviously, there are, are, are standards by which we need to live. I'm not, I'm not saying we, we, we throw out all of God's, God's regulations for holy life, but not these Old Testament regulations that, that the false teachers were trying to impose back on the, the new Christians at Colossae. But there's always an authentic attraction to legalism simply because it's easier to live according to rules and regulations. And so we naturally default to law and not grace. But as bad as legalism is, there's another danger equally harmful, and that's the sister error of mysticism. And Paul says, let no one disqualify you. I think this is a a warning against mysticism. Colossians 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So generally speaking, mysticism refers to a direct intimate union with God through contemplation or ecstasy. And I'm not talking about the pill. I'm talking about the psychological state of ecstasy. So mysticism refers to this idea of having a direct and intimate union of the soul with God through meditation and ecstasy. And we should say, I want to say quickly that There is a form of Christian mysticism that is not bad, evil, or or sinful, but it has as its goal a deeper knowledge of God, and and it's always in accordance with the Scriptures, not apart from it. But what we're talking about here in Colossians chapter 2 is a deceptive mysticism that is not grounded and rooted in Scripture at all. In the context here, it's a mysticism that is derived from the pretense and the imagination of these false teachers. So it's a a mysticism that comes from man and not from God. It's a mysticism that comes from the rules and regulations that these false teachers dreamed up. It doesn't come from the scripture. This gave this... They they claimed that you could reach God on a higher level by, by, by fasting and with severity to the body, and through the worship of angels. That was sort of a triad formula for getting closer to God. But this gave the so-called philosophy at Colossae its its, um, syncretistic character. And this is far from gospel-centered worship, believe me. Instead, it, it, it blends Jewish rituals with pagan religion, and it synchronizes them. And that, thus the concept of syncretism, taking bits and pieces of different religions and syncretizing them. Now, I've been in parts of the world where you have animism and Christianity and a little bit of Buddhism all mixed together. That's a syncretistic religion. It's not pure in its form. And that's what was happening here in Colossae. 
It fused Jewish with pagan religion. And, and it also, these, these teachers also claimed to have special visions. <laughs> and they'd go into great detail about what, they, about what they heard and what they saw. And then boasting about their vision, puffed up without reason, the Scripture says in Colossians 2, they considered themselves superior. Right? Because they saw visions and not everybody did. And so they were... They were of a higher spiritual level than all the rest of the people in the congregation. Have you ever been in a church like that? They exploited these experiences to their own advantage. Where there's a, a certain coveted spiritual experience that somehow elevates you to a level that is above all the other Christians with whom you fellowship. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nod your head if you understand what I'm talking Okay. I don't want to get too specific. And now I'm going to get specific. I remember a time years ago when a TV evangelist by the name of Oral Roberts stood before the television cameras and told people that he had received a vision from God. It was back in 1987. I wasn't born yet, but I had read about it. <laughs> 1987, this evangelist from Oklahoma uh, had written a fundraising letter and then stood before the television cameras saying that unless he raised $8 million over and above the regular giving to that ministry, by the end of the month, God would take him home. And there were some of us who were hoping, never mind. <laughs> not fair, not fair at all. <laughs> Those who followed the ministry of Oral Roberts said that announcements of this nature were not uncommon for his ministry, uh, such as the vision of and the conversation with a 900-foot-tall Jesus that had happened just months before this particular vision that he had. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm really not trying to make fun of Oral Roberts or any other minister uh, this morning. That's not my point. But I do believe that this is an example of exploitation. I believe this is an example of spiritual exploitation. He exploited a spiritual experience that may have very well been valid to some degree or another, although I've never read anywhere in Scripture where God demanded, you know, payment, or he'd take somebody home to heaven. There's nothing even close in Scripture that, that aligns with that. You see, that's our, our standard is Scripture. We, we test every experience, every vision, every dream, every prophecy, every teaching, everything that happens in our lives, we test by Scripture, right? We test life by the Word of God, not the Word of God by life. That's backwards. We evaluate what happens in our lives, good or bad, suffering or joy, according to the Word of God, not according to somebody else's ideas. And I believe that what, what was happening there in 1987 is a form of mysticism that confuses how God communicates His will with His people. It elevated this vision above the Word of God, and that is always dangerous. 
Run from it. Have no part in it. I believe this is the kind of thing that Paul is, is warning us about. <laughs> it, it really is a form of mysticism, in my opinion. And maybe if Oral Roberts were here today, he would have something to say about my ministry. I, I don't know. But, but please understand, I'm not trying to, to specifically speak against him. It's just an example of the kind of abuse that's out there. Agreed? Just want to make sure we're understood. So first we had the warning against legalism. Then there was the warning against mysticism. And now he says, let no one enslave you. And I think this is a warning against asceticism. Now he mentioned asceticism back in verse 18, but now he brings it home from third base. Asceticism is the practice of, of self-denial for the purpose of getting closer to God. So, of course, not all forms of asceticism are necessarily bad or wrong. Disciplines such as fasting, for example, that's a, that's a form of self-denial that, that genuinely does help us uh, you know, be more aware spiritually. Uh, voluntary poverty for the sake of the kingdom. Wearing simple clothing. All of these things have been associated with Christian asceticism, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. However, in time and over time, ascetics also began to practice things like uh, flagellation, you know, beating your body, severity to the body. Ascetics also practiced at one point self-mutilation, you know, cutting of yourself and, 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 and crawling up the steps to a cathedral on, on shards of glass. That was, you know, self-denial that somehow was supposed to get us closer to God. I'm not sure how, but sadly, church history is brimming with examples of ascetic excess, you probably have your own examples from your own spiritual history. Uh, some have even suggested that we should, we should give up sex and marriage and parenthood altogether. Deny yourself of those things because then you can get closer to God. Um, others believe that we should not have electricity or flush toilets. My, my wife doesn't like that one at all. Um, and we should not have chrome on our buggies. No, it's just self-denial. So asceticism, you see, we have to be very careful because asceticism can, can actually take the, the wonderful good gifts of God and turn them into something nasty, undesirable. But this self-made religion does not do any good. If you look down at verse 23, it says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's just, you know, cut your knees to shreds if you want to. Flagellate yourself till you pass out. But it's not going to help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because when, when my knees heal up and the wounds in my body heal up and I actually get some food in my stomach, my flesh is still my flesh. It's still, it's still tempting me to sin. So no amount of asceticism is going to help us get closer to God. The focus is off there. And the answer to such delusion begins in verse, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? 
referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and human teachings. So really, a, a church that tries to legislate morality or righteousness by including rules and regulations in its bylaws does not yet know what it means to die with Christ. If people who have not yet died to Christ try to live the Christian life, it's like it's impossible. But if you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, if you no longer live, but Christ lives in you, and the life you live in the flesh now, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, then you don't need all this other stuff. But so many, so many churches try to legislate morality. I've used the illustration before, but when we lived in Chicago, there was a church around the tip of the lake that had in its bylaws that men could not be members of the church if the hair on the back of their necks touched their collar, which was always, always, always held together by a necktie. So if your hair touched, you couldn't be a member of that church because your hair was too long if it touched. So Jordan, you would be out of there, man. You'd be history. So, and these are just silly abuses, but we all have examples of them, or many of us do have examples of these kinds of regulations. But if you died with Christ, if with Christ you died, why? Why in the world, as if you were still alive in the world and to the world, do you submit to its regulations? So you see how much freedom we have in Jesus? It's amazing. And this short but powerful paragraph ends the warning section that began in verse 8. It forms the climax, I think, to Paul's appeal to his friends in the church to have nothing to do with the ideas and teachings of these false teachers. So he sounds the alarm because there are robbers out there trying to steal your stuff, trying to steal your fullness and your, and your, your wholeness in Christ. They're trying to steal your liberty. They're trying to color grace, which, granted, at times can be feel kind of gray because there's not a lot of do's and don'ts attached with grace. It's grace. That's what makes grace, grace. So he sounds the alarm because robbers are threatening to steal your stuff. On a hot summer day, a grandmother was sitting by the window sewing while she watched her three grandsons play outside. Let's play cops and robbers, said Mike. I'll be a robber. Well, Terry and Melvin wanted to be robbers too, so they needed to find somebody else to play the cop. Let's ask Grandma. Nah, said Melvin. She can't run fast enough. Well, what can we do to make her mad? Old people can run real fast when they're mad. <laughs> and I think Paul is getting mad as he writes to the church at Colossae. And maybe he's writing a little faster as a result, too. Don't let these robbers steal your stuff, you guys. Come on, you've died, to, you've died with Christ. You've died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why are you tempted to get back on the bus and go back to the same city and walk into the same shoe store all over again? You just got out of prison. Don't go back there. Don't you realize that you have freedom in Christ and you have fullness in Christ 
Don't let the robbers steal your stuff, Paul is saying. The gospel sets people free. And if you're free in Christ, you are free indeed. Amen? So let them call us idiots. I don't care. I'll stand up to the robbers who want to steal my stuff. Come on, just try and take it from me. Call me an idiot if you want. But I have died with Christ, and so have you. I have nothing to lose. Besides, I know I'm right. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have set us free, and we are not going to give up our spiritual freedom. Father, in your sovereign grace and quintessential kindness, you count us among the throng of the saved, and we're grateful. Thank you. You've guaranteed that no matter what, we're yours. We belong to you now and forever. That's an agreement that you secured with the blood of your one and only Son and signed with the indelible grace of the gospel. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you today for your tender mercies and measureless sacrifice. You gladly took the appointment of the cross, sustaining the judgment that we deserve and and enduring the suffering for our sins, and you paid the penalty we owe. Thank you. That you actually delight in us and you want us to be with you is a little overwhelming at times. Indeed, this is, this is love. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and gave your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you. And in light of this good news, Lord, would you please help each one of us to respond to these alarms that were sounded in Colossians 2 this morning by the Apostle Paul. Help us to respond to these alarms and live accordingly. We don't want to turn to legalism or mysticism or asceticism to have a deeper relationship with God. We want to turn to Christ. We want, we want and need to find our fullness in Christ. Let no one and no thing steal our freedom or put it in jeopardy with false teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.